When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Friday, July 23rd, 2021. I'm Ash Bennington. Today, we have a special episode. Real Vision CEO and co-founder, Rao Pell, and macro insiders, Julian Brigden. All that in just a moment. But first, here are the stories we're watching right now. The S&P 500, the Dow, the NASDAQ Composite, the NASDAQ 100, all within a hair's breadth of 52-week highs. The S&P 500 is up 97% from its pandemic lows. 87% of companies that have reported in Q2 have beaten their earnings, according to Bloomberg data. And by the way, Bitcoin back over 32,000, Ethereum back over 2,000. Gentlemen, Raul and Julian, welcome to the show. Julian making his Real Vision daily briefing debut today. Julian Brigden is Raul's co-host on Macro Insiders uh, for Real Vision Pro. He is also co-founder of MI2 Partners. Welcome, Julian. Raul, thank you very much, Ash. Raul, before we get started here today, uh, for people who we may be reaching for the first time on YouTube, on Twitter, on the platform, tell us a little bit about the work that you and Julian do together. So we're basically two old curmudgeons who've been in the market for over 30 years. And we kind of think we know a thing or two and also also know that we don't know a thing or two. But what we basically do is come up, you know, between our two research services, Julian's MI2 partners and my global macro investor, we probably reach every single major hedge fund um, institutional asset allocator that really matters in this world. We speak to all these people all the time. And the whole idea behind Macro Insiders is, we're going to lift that veil to people. And so both Julie and I write articles. So we both write about two articles a, <clears throat> a month for it. Some of it actually comes from our premium research services. Some is specifically for this. So everyone gets a peek behind all of the curtains. And then we have this generally highly amusing video for about an hour where we debate everything and accuse each other of being fools. But the point being is we don't, there are times when we both vehemently agree with each other and there's times when we vehemently disagree and there's times when we're not sure but it all comes out in this and it really gives people a contextualized understanding of how to think like a market professional getting all the experience that julie and i have combined julian anything to add no i mean i i totally agree i mean Raoul brought me on board it was a it was a client i think who reached out and said i'd pay to watch you and julian uh, to Raoul and Julian together, which was, I thought was a great idea. And I, I bought into the concept straight off because I think it's, you know, we've always believed, I mean, but like you do with Real Vision, that the stuff that the brokers are pushing, the stuff that the most of the pundits on CNBC are pushing is just bullshit, right? I mean, they're just peddling their own wares because they have an ax to grind and they've got skin in the game. And essentially, we just try and be the rational voice and explain to people how 
you know, to preserve wealth, make money, um, spot trends, which they wouldn't have otherwise done. And I think we have quite a symbiotic relationship. As Ralph said, there are times when we do disagree. The time, most of the time, though, even then, it's, it's a timing issue. I'll tend to sort of mess around either side of a trade. I tend to be a little bit more active. Um, but we generally don't disagree about a ton of stuff. And I think, you know, it, it, in that sense, it's, it's, it's quite good. And then, so when, you, when yeah. we both agree, people know when to push. And we do push solidly concrete trading ideas, you know, buy it here, sell it here, here's your stock, right. whatever. And, and so far, they've worked out pretty damn well. So, gentlemen, with that said, you heard the intro at the top of the show. S&P, NASDAQ Composite, NASDAQ 100, Dow Jones, all near 52-week highs. I mean, really, a hair's breadth beneath. I, I told Julian in the last Insider Talks not to try the vanity trade. The vanity trade, as we refer to, is when one of us wants to short the equity market, um, we try and remind each other not to do it. I know. Uh, I know. Uh, that, that, I mean, I, I just had a, I've got a little, I've got like half a DAX position on. That's it. So it's only smalls. And uh, we won't add to it unless it breaks. And if we get stopped out, we get stopped out. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, this, look, when these, when the liquidity's flowing, right? And this is something, I mean, I've been amazed people are all running around showing all these charts of liquidity and, oh, you know, in the Fed and everyone talks about it. We've been talking about it in like 2008, 2009. Right? And everyone's just jumped into this game. I mean, don't get me wrong, but it, it, you know, while that liquidity keeps pumping, I, I just look at this world, though, and I think people are underestimating, I think, some of the strength that's existing. I, I do truly think, and this is one of the big imponderables, we were very bearish on the bond market. We got out. We hadn't sat. I, haven't, I didn't go long the bond market because I do generally believe that I think yields ultimately go significantly higher. But I, I think it's been very interesting to watch this last month, this couple of months, where people have looked since early June at this collapse in bond yields and gone, oh, my God, the sky is falling, right? The sky is falling. All the data's crap. I mean, I, I took on some guy on Twitter, for those who follow me on Twitter, when the guy just was completely got the, the indicator wrong and was calling it, you know, super bearish. I, I don't see there's anything fucking is slowing in this economy. Some of this stuff is going to peak, right? You don't grow retail sales at 50% year over year like we were a couple of months ago. You don't even grow it at 18%, which is where it's growing. Right. But could you grow it at 10? And if you grow it at 10, which is where I think it's going, that's still probably the most rapid retail sales growth we've had in a decade. Yeah. So, Raoul, that gets right into the question, the rhetorical question you've been asking. Is the macro shift underway? See, I entirely disagree with Julian at this point, and that's kind of fun, um, is, you know, I actually think we've got a soft patch coming um, before we get more stimulus and the economy takes more time to get strength. I think there's a number of variables, everything from China slowdown to this Delta variant. You know, Julian himself has just cancelled flights um, to the UK for this reason. And I think we're going to see an issue coming out of Japan that you and Weston talked about, Ash. I think we've got, um, there's a number, you know, when you look at the propensity and the University of Michigan surveys for everybody to buy big ticket items, it's, it's absolutely collapsed by the largest amount in all recorded history. Is higher prices actually stop consumption right now. And that's because we're very early cycle. People just aren't comfortable 
They don't have the cash. They haven't got their jobs back fully. So I have a feeling that we're going to see a slowdown before we and more stimulus. Before yeah, but we, Raul, we're not disagreeing. Once again, we're not disagreeing on this, right? There's no way we're going to do another whatever nine or ten percent GDP, right? It's going to come down definitionally from nine to six to five or whatever the hell the thing is. But the point is, is that and so PMIs are probably not going to keep sitting here, right? I mean, this, this is the question. So I'm some. I have a feeling like the ISM might get closer to 50, right? And that's happened pre, after pretty much every recession, and it doesn't mean anything because it's really early cycle. And right. everyone has this, oh my god, we're going back into a double dip recession, which I don't think. So I, right. I think it just may be a bit stronger than we think in terms of you know the PMI looks lower, the Fed go, oh my god, we need to stimulate. And that happened twice last time. So, I don't yeah, know I, yeah, go ahead, Ash, sorry. No, I was just going to say, Raul, one of the things that I think is very helpful, uh, particularly for people who aren't yet Real Vision subscribers, is your template for the way recoveries happen. Uh, what happens with bond yields, the knock-on effects from the Fed. I think this is an incredibly important generic template to understand in terms of the way you view markets. Generally speaking, coming out of a recession... This ISM crosses 50 on the upside, starts rocketing higher. Bond yields start rising almost immediately because everybody starts seeing prices rise because they're recovering from lows. The year-on-year effects start looking very positive for all the data. There tends to be a big inflation fear to start with. Then usually what happens, and this is almost every time since 1962, bond yields fall again because people have overestimated growth at the early stage of the cycle. Um, We get... generally a sort of growth scare. The ISM pulls off, not always, or it stabilizes. And then the actual inflation comes later in the cycle. Mm. Uh, and then that's when the Fed start raising rates again. So you generally have this little dance that happens. Um, not to mean that it repeats every time. Could this be different? This is a very different setup because supply chains and lots of things that Julian talks about. I don't know. But that's how I've always observed it. And you know, I've got a number of technicals that suggest Listen, the probability is there. And the good thing about Julian and I is neither of us believe in certainties. So we're always like, even if we argue with each other vehemently on something, we both will say, look, you could be right. I don't really know. And, you know, that's so I'm not saying I'm necessarily right. You know, Julian reads it a different way right now overall. And I respect that massively. Julian, pick up on that. Uh, Raul's message to your point about supply chains. What are you seeing there? What does it suggest about the overall macro economy? So, I mean, I, I'm an avid follower like Raul is of all these sort of PMI-type metrics. I mean, these, there's a ton of information here. So I just went through the market PMIs, which we just got today. And if you look at it on face value, manufacturing was blisteringly strong uh, again. Uh, they're talking about all sorts of, uh, you know, the backlog of orders at record highs. Um, they've barely even got ahead of the, they haven't even started the inventory cycle, which is one of the most powerful cycles you get in the economy. Uh, price pressure is still acute, but then you look at the services and you go, oh my goodness. Right, well, to Raoul's point, there's, there are some issues that are starting to occur. We're actually, one of those that we have been short is we've been short the home builders because I just, to his point, stuff has got so expensive, Ash, right, that people are actually pulling back and housing is the classic example. So there are, pockets of weakness there. But I look at this and, and see basically that this is a, you've seen peak acceleration, right? It would be highly unusual 
although I think there is a chance we could jump again on the manufacturing side, but it'd be highly unusual to get PMIs that sit above 60. I mean, these things just don't sit at these levels, right? I mean, they're, they're sine waves. They go up, down, up, down, up, because they're rate of change metrics. They're not level metrics, right? So unless the thing accelerates every, and, and at a continuing pace, they don't keep going up and up and up. They kind of flatline and then roll slightly. So I, I would be amazed if we held those. As I said, maybe on next month, it's going to go again on the manufacturing side. So you should see a bit of a natural slowdown. But the thing that I perplexes me a little bit is so this bond market rally i haven't really necessarily got a bit of a, a big problem with it i think it was mostly positioning i think people forget we've been steepening this bond market right with 10 yields rising relative to two-year yields for three years the amount of positions that were built up in that given that there was positive carry were massive right you've only got to look at the p l of the fund community for q2 to see what hit they took when the Fed pivoted in June. So to my mind, I'm, I think there's too much being built into this drop in bond yields. I think things are, we've been fitting a narrative. I haven't got a problem with the idea that ISM drops from the 60s to the mid 50s. But my point is, is and Grau's right, that can create that impression that, oh my goodness, the sky is falling. I'm not quite where he is the low 50s, but let's say the mid 50s. But it's deceptive because you forget the output gap is still closing with a PMI of 55 or 54. All right, it's not closing quite as rapidly with a PMI of 65. But that's what the Fed needs to think about. And the inflation pressures and the wage pressures, I think, are still acute. So I'm still in the camp that at some point, and I'm not looking at the long end, you don't generally, once the Fed gets into hiking mode, you don't look to sell the long end. What you look to sell is, to, is look for yields to move up in two years or one year or five years. That's the curve bare flattens. Okay, so those yields at the front move up relative to the back. This, this would be a super early bear flattening, right? Not really, mate, actually. If you go mm-hmm. and look at prior cycles, if anything, I was looking at this the other day. I think you get a Typic- bull flattening here, but a bear flattening would imply that the Fed are raising rates, and it doesn't feel like we're ready for that yet. Well, well I know. think they're going to prevaricate like crazy. Don't get me wrong, but I think they should be raising rates. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-ads.com. Well, you're very much a student of the bond markets. For people who aren't as familiar with the fixed income side, give us an overall view of what your sense of the shape of this curve is. So what happens is, if you think of the yield curve, it actually follows what the ISM does. They actually map very well. So if you think of the ISM, when the expansion is high, the yield curve tends to be steep. And when the expansion is slowing, the yield curve tends to be negative. And ahead of every single recession, including the one we just had, the yield curve went negative. And now it's going positive, as Julian said. And that should continue for an extended period of time until the Federal Reserve generally raise interest rates. I don't think they will in this entire cycle this time. That's my guess. Um, 
So they may try and taper from right. that's, the, that's the difference. They may try and it'll fail again. We'll never raise rates. I just do not see it. And what happens is, is inflation expectations come off. And what happens is the curve flattens, which means that the short end rates stay higher than the long end because the long end starts pricing and a slowdown in growth and inflation right. in the future. So the long end of the curve, looking at the what the market perception is of inflation based on the current rate of growth. When that rate of growth is diminishing or going negative, you see an inversion steepening when you see yeah. expectations well, of future growth. Why do you and I love bonds? It's they're really easy, unlike equities. Bonds for simpletons like Gillian and I, it's yeah. basically GDP, future GDP plus inflation, future inflation, that's it. right? So that you have two variables as opposed to equities, which is lots of people falling in love with things and hating it and all of the human emotions. Bonds don't have many human emotions except in absolute price washouts. That's the only time. They generally just work. <laughs> they kind of just, they're like the kind of macro professor that oversees as an adult in the room while everybody else is freaking out in all the different markets. Julian, what are your thoughts uh, on the, what the macro professor is seeing right now in the bond market? So, as I said, I, I think this, this drop in yields um, is a little overdone given positioning ash going into this. I think also you've got to have a lot of um, pension funds who are looking to lock in uh, as they hit their high watermark. So finally they, they had profitable as they had, solid assets against the liabilities. And then as soon as they do, they start selling some equities and they go and buy bonds and lock, lock in. But I do not typically, when the PMIs peak and 10-year um, yield starts to drop, is after the Fed has tightened. That's typically when you see both of those cycles peak because the Fed will be tightening as that ISM starts to accelerate in the old days, right? Right. But these aren't the old days, right? This is, you know, oh, that brick wall is getting quite close. I tell you what, let's fucking hit the accelerator even fast, harder, right? You know, come on, come on, come on, right? And by the way, to your point, Raoul, so I was talking to my buddies in D.C., almost certainly next week we get the infrastructure bill, $600 billion. And then right behind that is the reconciliation big Democrat family plan that's coming through. That's 3.5 trillion. And the reason why they're coming round to be more favorably inclined to it is not because they're raising taxes to pay for it. Quite the opposite, because they're not going to pay, raise taxes to pay for it. And so, because that's the controversial bit, not spending the money and increasing the deficit, raising the taxes. So we're looking at yet another stimulus package. Right? And I don't know if anyone's watched um, Drucker Miller on, C on MSNBC today, you should, because I think the guy is 110% right. What is, his, what is his, what stands for you? Uh, th this is clinical insanity, if we spend <laughs> any more money at this point. That we are, we are losing for a, they are going to, of course they are, mate. There's midterms coming. You have to spend the money ahead of the midterms. So we're going to run this economy, I think, blisteringly hot. Um, I think the trade, to my mind, still is the front end of the bond market, because I do think June did represent a tightening pivot, right? The Fed did become a little bit more hawkish. I, or, I hate to say hawkish, less dovish, okay? Um, 
but so that just shifts it, I think, to focus on when those rate hikes go. I'm still very much in the camp that Bill Dudley talked about on Bloomberg. And you can look up, if you look on, you know, just search Bill Dudley on Bloomberg, you'll see what he's been saying. And he's been saying, and he's right, that if you let an economy, if you think about it, you pull back the elastic band, right? As far as you possibly can, right? You just let it stretch out, stretch out, stretch out, stretch out. When eventually you have to let that elastic band go and you have to start raising rates, the force of that move is extraordinary. And what he's saying is, well, if we do this, then we have to go 200 basis points a year for the next few years until we hit the terminal rate. Now, both Raoul and I will agree that they're never going to hit the terminal rate because something will break way before then, Ash, like it has done in the last two tightening cycles. Let's not forget, they've tried twice to tighten since the global financial crisis. On both occasions, eh, eh, right, they failed because something broke because they've just created this beast, this, I like to say, they've created a crack addict in markets to whom they are now utterly beholden. And the crack addict just demands more crack. Julian, that's a grim assessment. Uh, and speaking of grim assessments, I wanted to get in a clip uh, of you and Raoul together uh, hosting Macro Insiders for Real Vision Pro tier, uh, talking of grim tidings, talking about what is happening in China right now, uh, a topic that Raoul mentioned briefly at the top of the show. Let's take a look at the clip. So are we really seeing the beginning of a risk-off move? Um, good news and bad price action would suggest that we are. I mean, we did have this morning, the Chinese pivoted and started to signal so easing again. The ECB, if anything, eased again, and the price action's crap. So let me show you another chart, because I think this yeah. is interesting as well that you'll quite like. That is the JP Morgan Emerging Market Currency Index. Right. That's really interesting to me, because, right, so it's been a relentless pattern of EM underperformance. Yeah. And it, if that breaks that trend line again, it kind of feels like it's going to go to the low. And I'm trying to think through, what the hell does this chart mean? Is this China blowing up? That's... Because China's, as I've, I've written about in the Chinese economy is bad. Well, I think that's why they've eased again. I mean, I, I must admit, my models don't suggest, but I think the financial markets are bad. Right? I mean, they've just, this is the stuff that, you know, uh, some of your speakers on Real Vision would, you know, agree with 110%. There you have it, a chart of the J.P. Morgan Emerging Market Currency Index. Rao, you said the Chinese economy is bad, and you asked the rhetorical question, is China going to blow up? Speaking of more grim tidings, tell us, Rao, what do you think the answer to that question is? The answer is, generally, you should always answer that question, no. But all of us in macro land have the fear that this can happen. Right. And, and, and it's the truth. I mean, everybody knows that this is a risk. Now, we're seeing China Evergrande. Um, there's, there's huge problems with the dollar funding market in China. Always has been. Um, this is one of the reasons for the Bitcoin clampdown in China. They don't want money leaving the economy. They want to keep their interest rate of uh, their, their um, FX stable. But China's slowing down fast internally. They're trying to re-stimulate a little bit. Let's see whether it gets traction. I think they'll probably get away with it again. 
but there is always a potential for for them to lose control of the situation because it's a highly managed economy it's highly leveraged and it's a you know it's increasingly complex so yeah i always keep an eye on it i won't i would use the chinese business cycle as a as a significant driver of the global business cycle um but i'll but at the bottom of the cycle it's tough to call about japan blowing up because i mean china blowing up because we've seen it you know people like kyle bass people like that have, have looked at it for a long time um and it's never happened and i've been on that call many times too yeah talking of the risk of losing control and china and japan i wanted to get to a question this one comes to us from brad s from the exchange who says uh, he's curious in hearing about the Delta variant of coronavirus and the effects it could have on the supply chain. He's especially interested to hear your thoughts, Julian and Raul, uh, because he's a trucker uh, and he's actually afraid that uh, his opinion may be biased. I mean, my feeling is when the guy who's on the ground in the supply chain says, hey, maybe we were- Brad's the guy who the- made the video uh, who's talked about the trucking supply chains. Very super yes, interesting Yes, sir. Guy. I believe really so. Interesting guy. I've- I'm worried about this. Um, well, Western keeps pinging me saying, listen, you need to take this Japanese situation seriously because nobody's been vaccinated in Japan and you're about to host the Olympics. And Japan is the third largest economy on earth. Yeah. And supply chains, and if that spreads around Asia again, to uh, many of those countries are not vaccinated because they dealt with the virus so well early on. It's the downside of dealing with the virus early on nobody vaccinated so yeah. look it's serious and again this is part of the reason i think we get a slowdown there is a potential issue again and it's like the follow-on waves from terrorism we've talked it before that they, they always become incrementally less but this is you know this could be a, a banana skin well has uh, weston called you after midnight yet that's how you know he's concerned <laughs> well, i won't answer the phone to him after midnight but I've, i'm getting these emails around the clock right now about because the Olympics is starting and he's in Tokyo. He's obviously, he's probably not been vaccinated and he's, he, he doesn't want to be ill. Oh no, he had COVID, I think, didn't he? I think he may have. Actually, we actually, Weston and I recorded a video for the exchange. Uh, Weston actually physically on the ground at Tokyo Station showing this basically deserted uh, station in Tokyo. It's like the Grand Central Station of Japan. Uh, and there's nobody there as the Olympics are about then, to start. So, so then how's, the, how's COVID going to spread? That's what I asked. I just sent some... Um, Western a note saying, well, if nobody's in the streets, then that's quite good social distancing. How's that going to spread? Yeah, we will be keeping a very close eye on that story. And I know Weston will be following it uh, on the ground. I wanted to jump in and ask a question that's come to us uh, from YouTube. Uh, This question uh, comes from Sean Young, uh, and it's to you, Ralph, but Julian, jump in here as well. The question is, uh, is ISM less relevant under the new macro framework? I think he's asking, Uh, Are ISM numbers less relevant this time around, as you've both mentioned? Obviously, this is not like anything we've seen before in terms of the springback effect uh, from this very sharp V-shaped recession and recovery. Does ISM matter? What relevant signal can be gotten from ISM? You can get a myriad of relevant signals from ISM. I mean, I think think no. Uh, I wouldn't um, discredit ISM at all. Um, You know, in many respects, it kind of, reminds me a bit of sort of late 2009, 2010, where you've got that first initial recovery. Mm. You get the first initial recovery, everyone sort of goes, oh my goodness, this is nothing. Things back off a little bit, and then they just go again. 
and uh, you can get employment signals, momentum signals, and and to Ralph's point, markets love to trade speed, right? So they they love to trade that second derivative, which is what these PMIs really measure. Um, you can get price indications. You can, I mean, so CPIs have been following perfectly, like these PMI prices paid. Um, you know, yes, right. another thing that the, that the Fed, Fed got utterly wrong when Jay Powell said, I think f- firms will be reluctant to pass on price increases. Really, mate? Um, and, uh, and we can see it in all the earnings numbers. So I think PMIs are still incredibly relevant. Although the, inter- the interesting point is I totally agree with Julian. Um, and this is something Julian and I talk about a lot. And it's just come out is the MBER recorded the recession as two months long. Right. Okay. This is mind blowing. It didn't have to be right, two is- consecutive quarters to be a recession. How can you have a two month recession? Well, because that's the, because these guys have a different yardstick, but right. This is mind-blowing, right? This has changed the entire study of economic understanding. And therefore, the question is, is does the downside in ISM matter anymore? Because the downside in ISM used to be when you sold equities when it crossed like 48. It's when you overweighted bonds. But what it's basically telling you is as soon as it breaks 50 or 47, the Federal Reserve step in and everything explodes higher again. So and it's then, still relevant. It doesn't mean that ISM isn't relevant, but your no, point right. is, is that the response function has changed, right? Because we can never, ever, 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 ever slow down, ever again. We're not allowed, right? We're not allowed. There's never, by the way, there's no consequences of never allowing us ever to slow down. Um, but you're right. Yes, every time this thing dips below a certain level, the response function is a little different because now all you do is you just wait for the policymakers to buckle and in you go again. It looks like the uh, NBER data has this recession at two consecutive trough quarters. And then, Raul, as you said, peak to trough two months. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I think this is. Ash, I think this, this is, is why I changed my whole macro framework. Yeah, this, I mean, look, mate, I was with you. I was with you before, right? I mean, I'm being like, you don't sell shit. You have to be long. I mean, I've been saying that to you. Have to be long risk, right? It's just a question of which risks that you do, and there's times you step back a little bit and whatever. But this is this is the lunacy of this thing. We have thrown more stimulus and more, you know, whether it's fiscal this time especially or monetary at this thing. We behaved like it was the end of the world. And yet the turnaround's been two months and we still haven't stepped back at all. In fact, in the US, they're going to chump in another lump of stimulus, right? So do we really think this thing is going to slow down? Speed, the speed may change a little bit because you can't, as I said, sit at retail sales growth at 50. Maybe it's just 10, right? Maybe that's just 10. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Let me play devil's advocate. So, very, yeah. obviously, very short, but very deep. If you look at the depth, uh, to which we saw the fall off in uh, in growth and productivity 
uh, and in a series of economic markers for the real economy. I mean, it was dramatic. It's a straight line down. Oh, yeah. It's the biggest recession pretty much in all recorded history. But it's two months. (laughs) So how do you square that if it's the shortest and the deepest? It's because, and I strongly think it's the debasement of the denominator of the value of fiat currency overall, is hiding what has actually happened here. Um, and that is the mag- the magnitude of the, the economic shock of what happened and happened in 2008 and happened in Europe in 2012 is real. And ask the average guy in the street, right? It's not yeah. what the equity price is showing. And okay. that's, the, that's the disconnect. And people think it's because rich people are buying more equities and all of it. It's not. It's because stealthily, or actually not very stealthily, but without making it clear to the average person, They've lowered the purchasing power of the currency, right. which allows you to buy less assets with your dollar. It's as simple as that. So it looks like the prices are going up, but the actual purchasing power is going down. Yeah, and if you'd like a chart, I know we can't show it live here, but look at the M2 money stock chart, uh, WM2NS on the Fed Fred database. Watch that rate of change, the acceleration coming out of the 2020 recession. So we've only grown it by 30%, Ash. I mean, you know, only only 30%, right? I mean, this is, this is my point, right? I mean, we just had the worst recession in history, to Ralph's point. It right. lasted two months, and we are still responding as if the world is about to end. And so, to my mind, it's utterly irresponsible. And we're not backing away. We're doubling down. Julian, what happens if, and I, I don't believe it's irresponsible, actually. I think the, the actual economy is more broken than people understand. Okay. I think the, 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 the amount of debt, the pension liabilities, uh, the disruption of technology on the jobs market, I think is larger than, than many of us understand, which is the reason why the Federal Reserve can't raise rates. So Correct. let's say you're right, right? Let's say inflation stays elevated and the Fed raise rates. I mean, you're just going to destroy everything. Yeah, again. Again, mate. I mean, as I said, remember, they started in 2014 to try and tighten, right? Do you remember in 2015 when the Chinese devalued, right? They went off to Davos. All the central bank governors did the international sign of distress and and Janet Yellen reversed policy, right? So then you fast forward another year and they start to tighten again, right? And then we go into the end of 2018, They've been hiking, tightening, you know, whatever, right? And then the world falls apart again, and they reverse again. It's so, exactly, they're snookered, Raoul. So They can't ever tighten policy. They can try, and we can take advantage of that, but that's it. They're snookered. And, Until and one day the end game comes and someone calls their bluff on this maybe continuous money printing. And by like, the way... By the way, the counterpoint to the M2 uh, stock expanding is the velocity of the M2 money stock collapsing from 2020. Uh, yeah, and Ash, take over. the Fed's balance sheet and take velocity and put them on the same chart, and you'll see they're just purely inverses. So the reason in part that the velocity's been dropping so fast is the denominator of the velocity is the quantity of money, right? So as you print more money, by definition, that denominator rises in value and that velocity falls. So it's a bit 
kind of deceptive. Don't get me wrong, the velocity has definitely slowed. It takes more and more money to create X amount of GDP. Yeah. But it isn't quite as dire as the straight velocity picture would let on. And this is the, the debate Julian and I have been having for several months now. I keep asking Julian, okay, so we can't have a recession. Assets are not allowed to go down. And you keep telling me you're worried about inflation. I'm like, well, why do we care? Assets are not allowed to go down. We're not allowed to recession. Yeah, but you and can get the point. The point is, I, th- I think this is what I would say. You still have a Fed or you still have a bunch of central banks. Maybe they're, they're becoming less convinced over time. Like the markets learn that the balance sheet and equity markets are the same bloody thing, right? So, but if you, and if you push central bankers hard on their own, and I've done it, and I had one admit to me, right, that this is the problem that they face, but they still kind of want to believe that somehow they can, can escape, you know, a jail and they don't have to go straight to jail. Like they can go past go, right, and collect their $200, right? So they keep wanting to kind of normalize the economy. So they sort of, talk about this little process and they follow their merry little dances. They say, oh, we're going to start tapering. And you go, okay, I know how that was going to end up, mate. Just bring it to me, daddy, bring it to me. So our role is to watch for when things get too hot and they try and taper and tighten. And then to Ralph's point, we just go, cheers, mate. Thanks. I'll buy a bunch of risk, right? And ride it again. Because there's nothing they can do, Ash. If you look at the correlation between total employment in the US and the equity market, it's the same chart. So in other words, the equity market drops, employment drops, right? The equity market goes sideways even, employment levels off. So you get, that means you get zero non-farm payroll every month, by the way, right? Zero, right? You imagine what the Fed would be doing at zero. They'd be going like, Oh, my God. Oh, so what do you have to do? You have to keep the equity market going up all the bloody time. All the time. And the only way of doing that is devaluing the money. Right? (laughs) Well, gentlemen, the one thing we have learned for sure is that we clearly need to do this again and more frequently. Uh, This was a great conversation. And while I hope the world is not about to end, unfortunately, this show is. Uh, Let's just get your final thoughts, Julian, on where you see this uh, going until we can meet again. So I think, Ash, to Ralph's point, we're probably in this period of sort of softening data because these accelerations just can't keep going forever, right? I do think there's more upside coming on the inflation print. I think we're probably going to hit CPI at least hit seven, maybe even above. Okay, and and in Europe a lot more. But then naturally, mathematically, the speed falls off and then people will get a little bit excited. I think the Fed is going to be challenged again, probably uh, in the autumn um, by some of these inflation metrics and by some of these growth metrics. And I think that's when you look potentially for risks to sell off. And then you just hold your nose, close your eyes, buy the dip, because that's what you do every single Brown, final thoughts. I'm kind of more in the David Rosenberg camp. I think it slows down more than expected. If it does, the equity market sells off, the Fed come back, the markets go up. The point being is it's irrelevant which action, what 
what outcome? They're all the same outcome. So I don't think bond yields go lower. If bond yields go lower, then tech stocks go higher. There, there is no stopping this. Um, so I am more cautious on the economy. And if that is the case, then you could see a sell-off in stocks. Again, it won't last. So, I mean, that's it. That's the entire game now. There is no other instrument because the Fed don't want the bond market to move either way, really. They can't allow the equity market to go down. No. Now, the currency market, I personally don't think it's going to move either. I think the dollar gets a bit stronger for a while, but it's within a broad range. And it has to be proven, you know, Julian's more bearish the dollar, I'm slightly more bullish. But in the end, if it stays in that range, then we have no macro variables, no credit, no currency, no bond market. You're left with one single instrument to pile all the money into, and that is the equity market. No, no risk in that then, ultimately, long term. <laughs> but there isn't. Well, no, you, no, <laughs> there can't be. But your point, it can happen on a relative basis. And, and the reason why I'm, you know, I'm very much in the sort of Druckermiller, Grundlack, that ultimately the end game is that the dollar is, that you receive your dollars in a big roll. They're white with perforations between them. And that's where ultimately the value of the dollar is going. But it, you have, we haven't got there yet, mate. No, yeah, you're going to have to get the pain for another year. The pain first. The pain first. Get them to come in and print more money yet again. Spend more money on fiscal. Right. I think that's where I, we're going. I'm glad this is a Friday afternoon because I need a strong belt after this one. <laughs> There's only two forty in the afternoon, Ash. I can't. Everything else gets this fun once a month with Macca Insiders. You see, this is yeah. this is fun that we have. It's a, it's it's fun. You know, we uh, debate a lot of stuff, and it's really interesting. It's always good yeah. fun to hang out with I'm Julian. Real Vision Pro now. Julian, Ralph, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, gents. Have a good Have one. Have a good weekend, everyone. Cheers. Thank Bye-bye. you so thank you so much for watching, everyone. Pour yourself a cocktail. <laughs> You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.